as Pastor John said uh, it, a little earlier, um, my name's Nathan, my wife Holly, I'm the family pastor over at Calvary Chapel Southeast Portland over in the Milwaukee Clackamas area, and um, this was something we did at our church a few months ago, and from there it's just kind of become something that we've, we've actually gone to a couple other Calvaries, we have others set up as well that we're going to be going to, and it just kind of grew into a presentation that we felt really needed to be given to other bodies or other members of the body of Christ. And so that's kind of how John came about it through Pastor Doug and invited us to come. And so we're going to be diving into just a couple light issues today. We're going to um, talk about social justice and critical race theory. So, uh, you know, nothing nothing too heavy, nothing too... uh, um, That's a joke, guys. You can laugh. It's okay. (laughs) We know that this is part of our culture right now and that it's actually permeating a lot of our culture. And so we're going to be going through a few different things. But we are encountering our culture today. That's the the focus and that's actually what we've ended up entitling this series of um, presentation. So encountering our culture and these issues that we're discussing, they are permeating entertainment. They're permeating pop culture. They're making their way and, and really kind of inundated themselves into education and into our governmental systems. And they're even making their way into the church. And so as Christ followers, it's our responsibility to know what is going on so that we can then raise up the next generation to know, understand, and to follow real truth, uh, God's truth, right? So that's the, the whole kind of focus of what we're discussing. As we move through these topics, let me just stay really quickly. We're going to be moving pretty quick. There will be slides up on the um, wall behind us, and that's what's in the handout for you as well. So you can jot down notes. If you have questions later, we'll be happy to answer those. Um, but we're going to move through this information pretty quickly just so we can get it all out to you, and then you can process it you know, over lunch or something later on today. But um, as we go through these topics, the overarching idea and what we hopefully will take away from this morning is that there is an ongoing ideological war. Hopefully you knew that coming into church this morning, but also when we leave, you really should, should see that there are very distinct lines being drawn between what is biblical truth and what the world is presenting as truth. So it's been going on for decades, but recently some new battlefields have been established, and in a lot of ways, Christians have shown up late to the fight. In a lot of ways, we were unaware that battle lines were being drawn, that battlefields were being organized, and we may have actually been miscategorizing what's really been going on. So a man named Neil Shenby states that these concerns are not political, they are theological. And that's what we're going to be looking at. So we're dealing with a worldview that is directly opposed to Christianity. Words, phrases, and ideas that are presented in this worldview seem to align with our beliefs, but when the true meaning behind these words, phrases, and ideas is revealed, they directly oppose our beliefs as Christians. But more importantly, they directly oppose God and His natural order. So, again, the purpose of today is um, summed up in a quote from Spurgeon. It said, He said, discernment is the difference between knowing what is right and what is almost right. There's a huge distinction there, but in a lot of ways it's subtle and we can miss it. 
So we are providing information to allow people to use spiritual discernment to differentiate between the right, which is biblical truth and justice, and the almost right, which is the worldly misguided sense of writing injustice. And as such, I usually don't have this stapled, I stapled it, so... And as such, I want to just say that Holly and I have been diligent in gathering information to provide what we think is the most accurate presentation that we could. But the expectation is never for you to just take our word for it, right? The challenge as believers is always to be like the Brians in Acts 17. Compare what you hear to scripture, do your own homework, use the spiritual discernment that God has given each one of us, and then come up with your own conclusions, If you do all of that, you should hopefully agree with us, because I think that we've done that in in leading forward with this. So it's not wrong for people, both secular and Christian, to want to rid the world of racism and injustice. But we must remember that the only way sin will fully be eradicated is through Christ's second coming and the events that follow that. While we are on this earth and we can be involved in fighting injustices, we must have a biblical understanding of how to handle these injustices. We have to make, um, excuse me, we have to make sure our definitions of these words and our actions against them align with the Bible. So as I mentioned, the topics we're going to go through, social justice, critical race theory, we will actually dive a little into diversity training and education. Uh, That's something that I am experiencing personally right now as a public school teacher, um, and then you know every other organization or area seems to be dealing with some sort of diversity training as well. So it's not just in education, but in education you'll see how it's directly being funneled down to uh, children and everything also. We'll talk about some ODE policy changes and then trends in education across the country uh, for that. So the format for what we're going to do, it's not just me. Holly's not just standing up here looking nice. She's actually going to be talking in a minute too. But she's going to actually discuss the historical background, the definitions, the modern applications of all of these concepts. So in essence, she gets to talk about all the boring stuff. Um, and then I'm going to discuss how these concepts hold up to biblical scrutiny and the way that they are creeping into the church, which hopefully is the stuff that you actually came to hear. So... If you find yourself disagreeing with everything that Holly has to say and agreeing with what I'm saying, that's how it should be, right? Um, and she's the one who set that idea and arrangement up. So this is the only time in my life and in our marriage where I get to be right probably, but we are going to hopefully present it that way for you. So we'll address the way that these concepts have been and are continuing to impact education and our children and ultimately our overall culture. So Holly's going to start us off with social justice. All right. So like Nathan said, I get to talk to you about all of the boring stuff. And that first boring thing that we're going to talk about is social justice. Mm -hmm. So social justice is the elimination of all forms of social oppression. To understand social justice, we have to understand first that not everyone starts with the same worldview. And so a worldview, that is the framework with which we view the world, how we make sense of the way the world works. Social justice is a worldview that is derived from an idea that everything is a part of an oppression-based power dynamic. This is victim and perpetrator, oppressed and oppressor, way of viewing every interaction and experience in life. So just like we as Christians view everything through the lens of the Bible, within social justice, everything is viewed through a lens of oppression. Everyone is either an oppressor or being oppressed. 
your status is based on which group you are included in, not on your individual experiences. So all of this is based on something called hegemonic power. And this power structure, that hegemonic power, really just means that this is the ruling or dominant force in a political or social context. So this hegemonic power structure ensures that oppressors always succeed and the oppressed always fail. Sensoy and D'Angelo, in their bestseller, Is Everyone Really Equal?, define this power structure like this. Hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. From a critical social justice perspective, privilege is defined as systemically conferred dominance and the institutional processes by which the beliefs and values of the dominant group are made normal and universal. So in other words, whatever the beliefs and values of the oppressor group, the oppressed group group must live under and embrace. This is crucial. Traditionally, we've always viewed oppression to be understood as something that refers to cruelty or injustice or violence or coercion. But critical theorists have expanded oppression to include ways that the dominant social group imposes its norms, values, and ideas on society to justify its own interests. For example, have you heard the term heteronormative? This means that heterosexuality is the normal, natural, and preferred state of sexual attraction and relation in society. Um, This is considered by social justice proponents to be the ideology of oppression. See, we say that heterosexuality is normal and correct because it is normal and correct. But they say that it is only because it is the orientation of the oppressors, and it is not actually more normal or correct than the other form of, of sexual orientation. Um, they would argue that all all forms of sexual orientation and attraction are equal and correct. So we want to think of oppression in a post-Cold World, classist, big government, it's the haves versus the have-nots mentality. But this isn't actually social justice. Technically, social justice is a form of neo-Marxism, but it's Marxism in the social realm and not the political. It's not government oppression that we're actually talking about. It is community oppression. Iris Young writes in The Five Faces of of Oppression, in its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer, not because of a tyrannical power that's coercing them, but because of the everyday practices of well-intentioned liberal society. Its causes are embedded in unquestioned norms, habits, and symbols. So basically, people in power do things to maintain and reinforce power and everyone else is forced to go along with the actions and behaviors of those that are in power. It is important to note that oppression has little to do with class size. This is not majority versus minority. It is who has the hegemonic or dominant power. So the term old white men is used often to describe those that are in power. But old white men actually only make up 15% of the population, yet they wield the most hegemonic power And so, therefore, it is their white male values that we hold as normal. Also, there are many forms of oppression. Here is a chart from a textbook that is used to train teachers that outlines some of the common forms of oppression. So we have racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism, classism, ableism, religious oppression, and ageism or adultism. So Nathan, as an example, just by existing as a white, straight, Christian adult male, is guilty automatically of racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism, ableism, religious oppression, and adultism. 
Fortunately for him, not being wealthy, he is not guilty of classism. So <laughs> this will be the one time that I, I will uh, praise him for not making a lot of money. But um, but you can see that this chart, just, just by being who he is, just by being the way that God made him, he is guilty of all of these societal sins. Social justice is distributive justice. Remember earlier when we defined social justice as the its goal was to eliminate all forms of oppression? Well, social justice at its core is distributive justice, or justice by means of redistribution. According to William Young, social justice is state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. Or in simpler terms, social justice seeks to redistribute resources from those who have unjustly gained them to those who justly deserve them. How do you know if you have unjustly gained resources or who justly deserves them? According to critical theorists, it's based entirely on which group you belong to. You are either an oppressor who has something that they do not deserve, or you are oppressed and do not have something that you do deserve. See, we think that we need to talk about a person, their story, how hard they worked, how they came from poverty, they made something of themselves. But they say it is just the hegemonic power structure that existed that allowed that white man to do what he did, and his individual experiences are irrelevant or only possible because of his privilege. We talk about individuals. They are talking about groups. They don't care about individuals, only what the dominant group has and what they do not have. So what does social justice seek to do? The end goal of social justice, the elimination of all forms of social oppression, this is where social justice gets overwhelming. There is a long and ever-expanding list of forms of social oppression. It includes things like celebrating diversity, child welfare, healthcare reform, poverty, affordable housing, racial equity, LGBTQIA plus rights, refugee crisis, income gaps, gun violence, hunger, food insecurity, and even climate change. If you've noticed over the last several years, the terminology has changed. We used to talk about global warming, and then they began to talk about climate change, now the term is climate justice, because apparently there is a disparate outcome in the climate that needs to be addressed. It it is kind of funny. It is. It's sad funny. The bottom line, though, is that even if we were able to eliminate all of this, everything on this list, all they would have to do is identify a new disenfranchised group, a new list of disparate outcomes, and the cycle restarts. The problem lies in the reality that we are using the same words, but with different meanings. We think social justice is giving people a fair shot, ridding the world of injustice. But social justice is the ultimate Trojan horse term. It seems to mean one thing as most reasonable people would understand it, a fair and more equal society. But actually it means something else. The redefining of our culture without the moral framework of the Judeo-Christian values that it was founded upon. So that's kind of a a framework of social justice, and now we take a look at that perspective from the Bible and why we as Christians should care. So if we're going to reach people, we need to understand the ideas that people are embracing outside of the church so that we can preach the gospel effectively. This is the principle that Paul demonstrates when he was preaching on Mars Hill and uh, was all things to all men. But second, these ideas are not just out there. As I stated earlier, they're also finding their way into the evangelical church. Paul and Peter spent much of their time combating false doctrine that was threatening scripture. 
we must understand that this is what is happening with social justice. It is a false doctrine that is com- or that is in direct opposition to Scripture. Many well-meaning Christians use this phrase out of ignorance. If we understood the meaning, we would stop using the term, or at least we should, right? But there are false teachers present in today's church. Denominations all over the spectrum are perverting scripture with worldly and cultural ideologies. They are splicing together inconsistent worldviews and are making up their own doctrines and their own theologies. So we, just as Paul and Peter did, must be able to identify and speak out against false teachings. When we talk about social justice, there's a little more to it. We serve a God that demands justice, so we naturally resonate with this term, social justice. But knowing how this phrase is being used, we must oppose the meaning. So Micah 6 speaks of justice. We are eager to do justice, but many are being deceived into believing a worldly definition of what justice actually is. So the truth about social justice is that we're um, looking at this idea of equity and fairness, or equality versus equity. So equality is the same opportunities, where equity is the same outcomes, right? And there's this picture here. Um, This has been around for quite a while. I've seen it probably the last 10 to 12 years in education. It's an illustration that's used to talk about the difference between equity and equality. And the idea is equality would be giving each of these three kids the same thing. They're each given a box. And then equity, we say, well, wait a second. Not all three of them necessarily needed a box to see over uh, the the fence there. And so um, equity would actually be giving them what they need to produce the same outcome. Right. And in th- in theory, that's a good idea. But the problem is that this is actually counter to a very um, important concept in the Bible, and that is the, the idea of free will. So starting with Adam and Eve, they were given a choice that produced, or they made a choice that produced an outcome. When they chose to sin, it produced an outcome. After the fall, each individual that has ever lived has had that same burden of choice. These choices will not always produce the same results. So equity is not something that's actually ever fully attainable. These choices are not going to produce the same results. We can never achieve the same outcome because we weren't actually designed that way. The ultimate example of universal equity would be that everyone ends up in heaven. That would be equity. We all have the same end result. But this we know isn't the case. We can provide everyone with the same opportunities, which we are supposed to do, equality. We share the gospel. We tell everybody the truth. We present Jesus to the world. But that choice produces different outcomes. And that's the part that equality or equity is trying to eliminate is the choice. See, in that picture, what we don't understand or what we don't know is what if the little boy that's given two boxes, maybe he sells one of his boxes. Maybe he sets them side by side. He doesn't understand that they're supposed to get stacked on top of each other. Maybe he destroys one of them. Maybe he gives one away. Maybe he doesn't care about the boxes and he just likes to look at the fence. We don't know what the actual outcome is going to be, so we can't guarantee an equitable conclusion. 
but that's the end goal there. So the difference between social justice and justice uh, kind of goes along these same lines. Justice is getting what you deserve without favor. And that's a pretty straightforward biblical definition of what justice is. But social justice is saying that we are getting what we don't deserve because we are favored. So we're, we're favoring one group over another. That's where we see things like redistribution. Justice asks who did it. So we know who then to punish. Social justice asks, well, why did he do it? And then sets out to explain away or to justify actions. Social justice removes personal responsibility and instead focuses on the causes behind a person's actions. This is victimization of the perpetrator, right? If someone is guilty of a crime, we turn them into the victim and we justify why they committed the crime. So justice seeks truth. Social justice seeks a narrative. Favoring the have-nots over the haves is that narrative. So Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 16, Romans 2, they all speak against favoritism in the context of justice. Justice is to be distributed to everybody. So social justice is not biblical. If there's one of three things that you take away from today... That statement should be it. Social justice is not biblical. How can I say that so emphatically? Well, if we look at Romans 1, many of those, many of the social justice arguments that we're seeing today and with what this worldview is trying to accomplish can actually be found on the list of sins laid out in Romans 1. See, social justice tends to actually hurt those that it claims to be fighting for. Social justice promotes sinful behavior and flaunts it as a person's right think of abortion homosexuality gender identity the list goes on but all of these issues fall under the social justice banner but by fighting for these causes social justice champions are doing more harm than good because they're allowing people to remain in their sin so here's a quote that kind of breaks all of this down in the quote, Thaddeus Williams is using the example of Marxism compared to the gospel. This is a fitting comparison because Marxism is really the foundation of modern social or modern day social justice. So here's the quote. He says, take Marxism, for example, it claimed to be about justice and compassion, where a biblical worldview built orphanages and hospitals to help the marginalized and broken. Marxism gave us the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge where the gospel led to the abolishing of the human dumps of the Roman Empire and brought societies unwanted into loving community, Marxism endorsed the systematic termination of societies unwanted. Where biblical Christianity set slaves free, Marxism sent millions to the gulags. Where Christianity inspired the Oxfords and Cambridges into existence to pursue knowledge uh, to the glory of God, Marxism inspired thought policing. Where Jesus transformed deep racial tensions into a new, beautiful, reconciled community, Marxism helped spawn identity politics and all the divisiveness, suspicion, and racial stereotyping that go with it. Is that today? Do we hear and see that today? So how then do we counter these social justice claims? Williams goes on to provide three ways that we can discern whether or not a social justice claim aligns with a biblical view of justice. 
He says, if a view of justice blames all evil on external systems of oppression while ignoring Solomon's pride-deflating insight that our own hearts are full of evil and moral insanity, then it is not biblical justice. A biblical worldview sees evil not only in systems where we ought to seek justice, but also within the twisted hearts of those who make those systems unjust. Because evil resides in every human heart, all the external activism in the world won't bring about any lasting justice if we downplay our need for the regenerating, love-infusing work of God through the gospel. He continues, he says, if a view of justice deconstructs relationships in terms of power differentials and argues that all such hierarchies are evil and must be abolished in the name of equality, then it is not biblical justice. A biblical worldview totally opposes the sinful sinful abuse of power, but sees many hierarchies like the parent-child, rabbi-disciple, elders' congregation, teacher-student relationships as part of God's good design for human flourish or for humans flourishing. If a view of justice interprets all truth, reason, and logic as mere constructs of the oppressive class, if it encourages us to dismiss someone's viewpoint on the basis of their skin tone or gender, then it is not biblical justice. The greatest commandment calls people from every ethnicity and gender to love God with our whole minds, which includes the truth-seeking, reasonable, and logical parts of our God-given minds. A mind that loves the Father assesses ideas based on their biblical fidelity, their truth value, and their evidence, not the group identity of those that are articulating those ideas. So we ask ourselves another question. Should we as Christians care about social justice? And as I said earlier, we have to be concerned with injustice because God is a God of justice. We understand that there is injustice. We understand that there is racism. But our worldview is Christ-centered. The social justice worldview is man-centered. In order to deal with those injustices, we must understand how Christ would have dealt with injustice. So we have many, many examples of this throughout the Bible, but the ultimate truth behind our worldview is that Jesus brings justice. So in the social worldview, government and policy and activism bring justice. So here's a couple tidbits about Jesus. So Jesus lived and occupied Israel. The Romans and the religious leaders were oppressive. He declared himself as the one that would set the oppressed free, and at any time, he could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus focused on ministering to people's hearts. He spoke truth. He brought peace. He showed mercy and he gave grace. Ultimately, Jesus provided a way for each of us to have a relationship with God. This was his mission. Justice was part of his mission, Really, it was more of a byproduct, but it was never the focus of his mission. So this provides insight for how we should handle social justice. Jesus was after the heart of the individual. Without a change at the heart level, governmental policy or group activism will never produce the desired outcome. We must focus on the heart of the individual. This begins with our own hearts and the hearts of our children, and then it extends to everyone else that we know or come in contact with. How do we achieve biblical justice? Not through government, 
but through the heart. And it's one heart at a time. So our worldview must be biblical. We must take every thought captive, like they, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, and align them with Christ. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Now Holly will jump into critical race theory for us. So what is critical race theory? Well, critical race theory is a branch of a larger theory called critical theory. And critical theory is the ideology that divides the world into these dominant oppressor groups and the subordinate oppressed groups that we've been talking about. And it is the basis for social justice oppression. Critical race theory uses this model to address specifically racially-based oppression. There are four tenets of critical race theory. Tenet one, everything is racism. Racism is the normal, common experience for BIPOC, or black, indigenous, and people of color. Tenet two, America was intentionally structured to be racist. Tenet three is intersectionality, and then tenet four, interest convergence. Let's take a look at tenet number one. Everything is racism. In White Fragility, Robin DeAngelo says, when a situation happens, we don't need to ask whether racism occurred there, but how. We are to assume that racism happened because everything is racist. The assumption of racism trumps any other facts that would help determine an outcome. Basically, racism happened, and then everything else can be evaluated accordingly. A large piece of understanding and accepting racism is something called lived experience. Contemporary critical theory argues that lived experience is something that gives oppressed people special access to truths about their oppression. You cannot question someone's lived experience. This is considered sacrosanct. You cannot argue rationally against someone's lived experience. The idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is considered to be specifically Western and masculine in thinking. According to this ideology, privileged groups tend to be blinded by their privilege. They maintain and make others believe their way of thinking is normal and correct through their privilege and oppression. Oppressed people will begin initially with internalized oppression, where they will believe the ideology of the oppressed group. In order to break free from their oppression, they must achieve something called liberatory consciousness. This is what allows them to recognize that they are being oppressed. This is the process of getting woke. Tenet 2, America is purposefully racist. Instead of teaching traditional views of America that it was founded on Judeo-Christian values, America is now being viewed as being founded for the purpose of oppression. Structures within the American system exist solely to prop up the hegemonic or dominant power structure. Let's look at the police as an example. Police are considered to be one of the mechanisms used by the oppressors to control the oppressed. It is not enough to reform police. The police are inherently bad. There is no such thing as a good cop because all cops are used to keep the power dynamic sustained. They must be defunded because they are tools of oppression. Police bureau, bu- excuse me, bureaus are seen as taking money from the community that should be redistributed, and instead they're using it to oppress people. Crime and issues that need policing are also often considered to be imaginary or just byproducts of oppression, and they should not be su- punished by the system that is maintaining the oppression. Every time something happens within the system against these oppressed groups, it is considered to be injustice. In other words, every time a black man is arrested, every time he is charged, this is an injustice. It does not matter what he did. 
It does not matter what the severity of the crime was. It is automatically an injustice because of racism. It is the fault of the oppressive system that set all of this in motion. It is important to note, too, that the skin color of an individual police officer makes no difference in this argument. Even if someone is a black police officer, they are still a part of that dominant power structure, so they are therefore still considered to be a part of the tools of oppression. The system is used to blame, or it is to blame, not the individual and their choices. The solution to fixing America is fundamental change. Ibram X. Kendi, who is the best-selling author of How to Be an Anti-Racist and is a leading voice in this movement, proposed the following amendment to the Constitution. It is up here. It's really teeny tiny, but I will read it to you. To fix the original sin of racism, Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy and the different racial groups are equals. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold, as well as racist ideas by public officials, with both racist ideas and public officials being clearly defined. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, comprised of formally trained experts on racism, and no political appointees. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policies and ideas. Note some of the key ideas in this amendment. First of all, the term original sin of racism is not just something that they threw in there. That wording is deliberate. Racial inequity is considered proof of racial policy. So if something is not equal, it is automatically proof that it is racist. They also are wanting non-elected, non-appointed department of experts. This would be themselves. With disciplinary power, to pre-clear all policies and investigate all officials, decide who runs for office and what laws can be passed. This is also noted in their private racist policies. So they're really not just talking about people in office. They are talking about corporations, businesses, churches, things that would be considered outside of their realm of influence. We should be alarmed that this is getting traction within politi- with politicians and deci- or decision makers. As recently as last year, Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Twitter, donated $10 million to make this amendment a reality. This would fundamentally change America. Tenet number three is intersectionality. Intersectionality is a term coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw to address how black women were excluded from traditional feminist ideas and anti-racist policies because they do not address the overlapping oppression of black women in both categories. She says it is a lens or a prism for seeing the way in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exacerbate each other. So in other words, no person has a singular unitary identity. Um, this does sound contradictory, right, to everything that we just talked about with you're either an oppressor or an oppressed. Now we're saying that you cannot be singular in your identity. Um, but they, they believe both completely. So your race, gender, it cannot be separated. According to intersectionality, you can be both an oppressor and oppressed at the same time. 
It is this idea that our identities are complex and cannot be understood on a single axis. So within intersectionality, they draw a distinction between white and black women. While white women are victims of sexism, they are also perpetrators of racism and therefore cannot be treated in the same way as a black woman. Intersectionality has this assumption of asymmetry. So if you have two people in a conversation and one is a white man and the other is a white female, the man is automatically in the role of an oppressor. You have that same conversation, but now the white woman is instead speaking with a black woman instead of a white man. She is now the oppressor. Even if you claim to be an ally, which is a term that is thrown around for someone who stands in solidarity with the oppressed, you are still an oppressor. And then tenet number four, interest convergence. According to interest convergence, civil rights victories only happen when black and white interests converge. Movements towards ending racism or establishing civil rights are not based on morality, but on the fact that there is something in it for the oppressor. So an example given by Dr. Derek Bell, who was the one who originally came up with the idea of critical race theory, um, he used this to support interest convergent in the political brown, or excuse me, the pivotal Brown versus Board of Education case in Topeka, Kansas in 1954. So as a history teacher, this was always one of my favorite cases to teach because it established that concept that separate is not equal, and it ended the legal segregation that was happening in schools. According to Bell, however, this case was only decided in favor of little Linda Brown attending a white school because it gave America the moral high ground in the Cold War with the Civil Union. Soviet. So how do they say that we deal with racism? You have to disrupt the existing power structure. This happens by placing people who are of like mind or adequately woke and true believers in positions of power and influence to start fundamentally changing the power dynamic. It is not enough to pass legislation or change practices within the current power structure because this just legitimizes the oppressors. You have to break down the system and replace it. This is why civil rights issues from the past are viewed as weak or not enough, even though they benefit people of color. You must be an anti-racist. You clearly cannot be racist. It's not enough to be not racist. To the anti-racist, if you say, I'm not racist, that really just means you're racist and you're in denial. You must be anti-racist. And to them, anti-racist means that you completely accept the tenets of critical race theory and social justice. To be anti-racist, you have to do the work of anti-racism. You have to actively work to dethrone racism. You have to actively tear down the power structure. See, racism is not about your character. It is about your political ideology. Anything short of the correct politics is considered to be racist. So y'all didn't expect to come to church this morning and be told you're a bunch of racist sexists, did you? <laughs> well, luckily... That's not where the story ends. And now we're going to take a look at critical race theory and align it or or contrast it really to the Bible. So as we move into this discussion, here is what we must remember. And this is Colossians 2.8. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. So we've already established that we understand that racism is a real thing. But we are talking about a different worldview. Critical race theory 
is a, f- a facet of the social justice Marxist worldview. It has a different starting point and a different conclusion than Christianity. Racism is real. It has plagued our past and there are many people today that are still racist. Racism is sin and the Bible speaks clearly that we as believers should not view people in light of their skin, but rather in light of their hearts. Critical race theory is taking God's truth and replacing it with the truth of experience. We as Christians should be solely focused on God's truth, not man's philosophy or the principles of the world. Kinham says this, he says, ultimately, the only way to deal with race issues is to proclaim the truth of God's word and the gospel, beginning in Genesis. Until people believe God's word revealing the true history of the human race, what our problem is, that is sin, and what the solution is in Jesus Christ, race issues will never be dealt with as they need to be. The fact is all humans belong to one race, Adam's race. We are all one family and all are sinners in need of salvation. We need to love our neighbors as ourselves and we need to be reminded of how Jesus taught us as Christians to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Critical race theory is part of a bigger worldview of social justice. CRT rejects personal responsibility and instead it focuses on societal responsibility. The oppressors are the sinners while the oppressed are only responsible uh, to their circumstances or to their experiences. The original sin of, oppress- of, op- of the oppressor is racism, and the only way to atone for this sin is to become anti-racist, as Holly was saying. So anti-racism isn't just opposing racism, it's denouncing our whiteness. It's becoming an advocate for social justice causes. It's living a life of penance that never stops. So this is one of the major differences between the biblical worldview and the social justice or critical race theory worldview. The biblical worldview is a view of repentance. Jesus says, go and sin no more. The social justice CRT worldview is a view of penance and shame. And it's penance and shame over the sins of others in many instances, not even necessarily your own sin. So here are three reasons why CRT and the biblical worldview are not compatible with one another. Critical race theory or critical theory offers a different view of humanity than Christianity. Our identity consists of the groups we belong to, our race, our gender, our age. The Bible claims our identity as being created in the image of God. That's our human identity. And then through the blood of Christ, that's our Christian identity. The Bible states that we are all equal before God. We're all created in his image. We all have sinned. All deserve punishment or justice. All can be redeemed and reconciled. And all are offered grace and mercy through Jesus. The second um, incompatibility here is critical theory offers a different view of sin than Christianity. The Bible identifies sin as anything that violates God's design for people, including unjust oppression of other people. Critical theory identifies sin only as oppression. Discipleship, correction, leadership, reproof are actually all sinful oppression or sinful assertions of power if they come from an oppressor and are directed to anyone in an oppressed category. And then the third reason, critical theory offers a different view of salvation than Christianity. Christianity says that our hope is found in being forgiven 
by of sin through Jesus Christ. CRT, salvation is not found through repentance, but through social liberation. Hope is found in activism. Critical theory gets the problem wrong, so it also gets the solution wrong. It has a different view of who we are, what the problem is, and how we should fix it. It is not compatible with a Christian worldview. So then why is critical theory creeping into the church? Similar to what we spoke about with social justice in general, we as believers know that racism is sinful, and we are aware of the past mistakes, especially in the Western church, that did not view racism in the correct light. So we are almost too eager to jump on the we're not racist bandwagon that we don't fully understand what we're signing up for. So instead of adopting secular methods to fix spiritual problems, Christians should look to scripture to address sinful behavior. We start with an understanding of free will and personal responsibility. We move to the idea that God has created a single race and that we are all made in His image, as Genesis 127 says. We live our life according to the great commandments to love God and to love others. And then we combat racism and any other sin at the relational level, impacting the hearts of the individuals. And we do this through both grace and truth. So this is how we should be dealing with these issues, not at the governmental or political issue, but at or political level, but at the individual and the theological level. In their article for Answers in Genesis, Clay and Smith expand on this. They say that the phrase one another occurs more than 90 times in the New Testament and that there is never a time when one another is linked to race, gender, or any other characteristic. Instead, one another is directly linked to our common faith in Christ. It is a designation used to identify fellow believers. And here are some of the ways we should be interacting with one another. We should love one another. We should build up one another. We should stimulate one another to good deeds. Bear with one another's burdens. Be hospitable to one another. Pray for one another. We cannot legislate heart issues. The church should be dealing with these issues individually and within our local community. And let me just say, we cannot take this to the outer world if we can't deal with it within the church first. So we're going back to some of these basics. These are things that should already be established within our churches, but they're not. So to use an activist catchphrase, this is a grassroots type of work. We change the greater outcome through small individual changes. We're going to leave this section here with one final quote. I I quoted Neil Shenvey earlier, so this is another thing he said. He says, A worldview based on critical theory and a Christian worldview conflict not just with respect to a few isolated issues, but with respect to the basic questions of epistemology, identity, power, and morality. It is impossible to reconcile the two. To the extent To the extent that we adopt the premise of critical theory, we will have to abandon the basic tenets of Christianity and vice versa. The social justice and critical race theory are not compatible with a biblically based worldview. So we're getting ready to go back into the back to school season. And so one of the questions that really probably is weighing heavy on your hearts, I know it weighs heavy on ours, is how does this impact education? How does it impact our kids? How does this impact your college educations for those of you who are, who are just getting started with that this year? Let's start at the beginning of that, and that is the liberal studies on college campuses. 
This worldview is permeating college campuses. Students are being indoctrinated with the ideology of critical race theory in all disciplines, and it is happening even at Christian colleges. It is most influential in schools of education where there are humanity classes like women's studies, ethnic studies, queer studies, etc. The ideas come together here as a fountainhead in schools of education, and this is where teachers are being trained and taught how to teach. Once teachers are trained in critical theory, these ideas are then disseminated to our children in classrooms, but they're done so by fully indoctrinated believers in these theories. We as parents who do not share their worldview are seen not just as obstacles, but enemies of a false religion. The same fervor that we teach our children at home about God, these teachers have in teaching them at school about anti-biblical things. This has been a progression that's been happening over the last 30 years. Since this ideology was introduced in 1989, these liberal art colleges have been teaching these theories. It is being taught to our children in public and private schools. It started incrementally. So in the 90s, it was mostly in our entertainment. Homosexuality was on television shows like Friends and Ellen. Evolution began to be taught in schools where we saw a devaluing of humans as being made in the image of God. Contraception and sexual education in schools was much more autonomous and much more graphic. In the early 2000s, we saw a shift in schools from teaching the founding fathers and particularly any reference to their Christianity or faith. And instead, everything pre-Civil War was moved to the middle school level where it was taught at a very basic level. And high school education focused more on the progressive ideology and the current event issues. At the elementary and middle school levels, they started reteaching the exploration period and reframing Columbus as a villain and focusing instead on the plight of the indigenous people. 2010 to 2020, we saw a reframing of civil rights and the Civil War with with an emphasis on white guilt and reparations. Now, at this point, they've picked up enough traction that it's moving faster and faster, kind of like a snowball rolling down a hill. What started small is bigger and bigger, and now they're far more brazen about what they're doing, but this is something that has been happening in classrooms for years. Another major point is that there is a devaluing of the role of parents within the realm of education. Um, An important issue here is that teachers are viewing themselves as more of a replacement for the parents. Teachers see their role as mentor and guide to unteaching the racist and oppressive views that are taught to them by their parents. Teach for America, which is a popular program that pulls recent college graduates from different disciplines into classrooms across the country where there are teacher shortages. Um, But without actually training them how to be teachers first, they kind of get on the job training. Um, This is directly from their website. This is a time when teachers and all educators alike must be willing to both confront and reorient their stance on what it means to be a teacher. This means teachers must be willing to reject the dangerous notions of what it means to be a teacher. Dangerous notions are the often unchecked ideas that teachers have about what their role ought to be. Examples of dangerous notions include the belief that neutrality is a harmless stance, that teaching is apolitical, that it is okay to be colorblind, or that teachers should not engage in the work of anti-racism or social justice and should not touch upon controversial issues. So the bottom line, students are often encouraged to seek guidance from school personnel instead of parents when they are dealing with major life issues. 
We see this very specifically anytime anyone wants to discuss their gender or their sexual orientation. They are encouraged not to go home and talk to their parents about these feelings, but to keep that conversation within the school personnel. Students are often encouraged to keep private from their parents things that are discussed inside of the classroom. But what students are not encouraged to do is adhere to the beliefs and values of their parents. So there's a few different things that are going on here in Oregon. And, you know, the last time we did this a few months ago, uh, we've actually had to go back and adjust some of it because some of those things have already been pushed through or uh, luckily a few of them have fallen off. But there are things that are going on at the, the Department of Education level. There's also things going on at the legislative um, level. One of the things, and you may have seen this article a few months ago, but the idea is that uh, math is racist, and that came directly from our wonderful state. So a pathway to equitable math, inst- equitable math instruction recently sent by ODE to all math educators is um, as a recommended professional development course to integrate equity into mathematics and dismantle racist math instruction practices. So the idea here is that even... Or, what is it, by forcing students to come up with the correct answer, you're actually imposing racism. And it's nonsense. I know. It's, it's, also showing your work. When you do your math, yeah, if you, you have show to show your work. Your work. Yep. If you require students to show their work, it is oppression and racism. And their quote is, our duty as anti-racist educators to unpack how the standards uphold white supremacy culture. So notice the use of anti-racist. Establish, this is establishing any sort of idea in any sort of curriculum and dismantling it as potentially being racist and figuring out a way to prevent it. So uh, we're looking at gender-inclusive uh, issues in biology. So the Multnomah School District held a workshop back in May for teachers, and it, this is for biology teachers, and their instruction included changing terms like mother to now use the term gestational parent or changing male to people with testes and female to persons with an estrogen-dominant body. Male and female seems pretty straightforward, but we need to complicate it with this. Uh, they also recommend videos, the one titled, There Are More Than Two Sexes. And so they're trying to bring this into, even though it is not the, the gender issue, because the, one of the big arguments is always that gender and sex are two different complete, or two completely different things. And so they'll argue that gender is something that's established through social science and that sex is something that's established through biology or natural science. Well, now they're bringing the gender issue into the science, even though there isn't science to support it. And it's just a very interesting thing, especially as someone who is a biology teacher. That's one of the the areas that I'm licensed in. And looking at the just perversion of what they're calling science to get these things in to that, it's disgusting. So a couple other things here. HB 2166 was actually signed into law. This creates new K through 12 standards for social emotional learning. The bill uses social justice language and is incorporating racial equity teaching into the standards. Also includes instruction and licensing requirements for early childhood education providers dealing with racial equity. House Bill 2954 has also now been signed into law. It allows charter schools to weight their lottery system for enrollments to favor historically underserved students so they can set up a way where 
those that are in any of these oppressive groups have a higher chance of getting in. And this coincides with a new charter school grant that is only available to schools with 65% or higher of historically underserved students. So they're trying to use a, a rigged lottery system to get as many into those charter schools as possible to then provide additional money for those schools that are only uh, using that demographic or filling that demographic requirement. Senate Bill 223 is currently in committee. Uh, this would restrict public schools from participating in interscholastic sports or activities with any private school that is not registered with ODE. So eliminating some of that uh, competition um, between private and especially the, the private Christian schools. It, it would uh, require those schools to be registered and have several factors, including curriculum approved by a committee, which would likely preclude religious-affiliated curriculum, introduce equity, critical race theory, and social justice, and make private schools de facto public schools. So the only way that our students in private schools could compete in academics or choir or any of the other competitive nature, whether it's, you know, um, uh, math contests or the, uh, I don't know, I wasn't that big of a nerd in high school, I forget some of them, but um, <laughs> any competition that our private schools traditionally would do with public schools, we would have to basically, those private schools would have to be registered with ODE, and to be registered, they would have to agree to teaching all of these things and basically giving up what makes them a private school. Senate Bill 683 is also currently in committee. This requires school districts to provide instruction on racist history of this country and this state. If enacted, this bill would mandate the statewide adoption of a 1619 project type curriculum for all K-12 Oregon public schools. And if you don't know what 1619 project is, Holly will talk about that in just a minute. But then, um, according to Liberty and Education, this bill characterizes the overarching theme of Oregon and U.S. history as racist. It would require all history to be taught through an oppressed oppressor racial lens. It would require a radical overhaul of the fifth grade Oregon Trail unit to characterize all pioneers as being motivated chiefly by racism. Senate Bill 254 currently is in consideration, consideration hasn't been scheduled or gone to committee yet, but it removes a, the ability of a parent to decline required immunizations against rest, restrictable diseases on behalf of, child, of children for a reason other than the child's indicated medical diagnosis. Uh, and then Lake Oswego School District has anti-racism lesson plans. Um, these lessons include dominant narratives, white supremacy and culture, implicit bias and structural racism, microaggressions in our lives, Black Lives Matter from hashtag to movement, and whiteness. So there's a lot of different things going on in Oregon and in our education right now. Right. And then just very briefly, a couple of things that are happening across the country outside of Oregon. Um, in New York, a principal sent home this uh, spectrum of whiteness that basically showed parents how they could teach their children to go from being white traders to becoming white abolitionists. So it's basically a tool work of how you could teach your kids at home how to hate the fact that they're white. Um, the 1619 project that Nathan alluded to was basically a series of essays that were um, published in the New York Times by Nicole Hannah-Jones that reframes U.S. history, that arguing that instead of being founded in 1776, like 
we know is true, it was actually founded in 1619 when the slaves were first brought to Jamestown. So school curriculum is being reframed as this is being adopted across the country. Um, Jones said, the only way you can believe that this country is the most liberatory democratic nation in the world is to, of course, erase the indigenous people who are already here and ignore the enslaved Africans. So this curriculum is being taught in every state across the country. Um, it is gaining traction. It's being picked up by a lot of different districts and is um, also being very encouraged by the White House right now to be picked up by even more. Um, and then finally, babies are racist. Um, the Arizona Department of Education created an equity toolkit that claimed that babies are racist because as young as three months old, they are able to distinguish a difference between someone who looks like their parents and someone else. So instead of thinking logically through a child sees mom, mom has white skin and dark hair. I have, I have a, a one-year-old in the other building. Um, she recognizes women that are similar in appearance to me, and she smiles at them because they remind her of her mother. This is a normal social growth pattern for children, but this is now deemed to be racist because babies are showing preference for people who look like their parents. So, And then by the age of five... Um, white children are completely biased in favor of whiteness. But the, the best part of this study was that um, they claimed there was no change in preference for black children. It was only white children who showed this preference. So, yeah. And just to make it clear, our daughter does smile at black people too, not just <laughs> white women. <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, we're going to wrap this up here. This is, and what we've been talking about, is a false religion and a false worldview. So remember the world of Neil, or the words of Neil Shenvey, he said, these concerns are not political, they are theological. We have to take it seriously. This is a faith-based philosophy and should be treated as a false teaching. We must see this worldview as a religious impulse that is an error and will lead people to hell. In his book, By What Standard, Jared Longshore writes this, Many have failed to see that a false religion is afoot. This false religion is the same one, the same one God gave people up to in Romans 1. We have turned from worshiping the Creator to worshiping the creature. This religious system teaches that man is God and that the human will is the holy standard. Salvation masquerades as that future state of universal equality gained by strict adherence to the Hegelian dialectic but in reality, it consists of, of satiating the unrestricted human appetite by any means necessary. So we do not leap up on altars crying out to Baal to send fire while cutting ourselves. But we do leap up on cars as we riot in fiery streets, cutting down people's livelihoods while crying out to finite governmental gods. We do not sacrifice our children to Molech, but we do sacrifice them to Planned Parenthood. The social justice movement is teaching people to vilify others based on past sins, and in many instances, the past sins of other people, and to discount them or to cancel them entirely. This is completely anti-biblical. We should be ripping pages out of the Bible and discounting whole teachings if we adopted these viewpoints. Hebrews 11, our hall of faith, there's not a single person there without sin. Their sins are evident. This is glory, or this is the glory of the gospel. It provides real salvation for real sinners. When we see the mistakes and sins of Moses or Abraham or David, Peter, Paul, you get the idea. We don't celebrate their sin, 
but we identify with it. We identify with them. They were sinners saved by grace, and we too are sinners saved by grace. It is the responsibility of every Christian to fight this, but we must fight the same way Jesus did. We must appeal to the heart of man. We develop relationships. We counter lies with truth. We counter hate with love. We counter the philosophies of man with the doctrines of God. And we are going, or we're going to leave you guys with three verses. And I think together these three verses strip away all of the rhetoric. They strip away all of the extra noise. And they really lay out what our perspective should be. And just so Holly can finish on a good note, I'm going to let her read those three verses to you. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. First Peter three fourteen through 17